Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I hope that you all went to bed on time last night. I hope that you prayed for this assembly. I hope that you prayed for your pastor. I hope that you're here to hear the word of God. I hope that you will exercise a little diligence and effort in focusing your attention on what the Lord has to say to you. It's the Lord speaking to you. It is not me. This is the word of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. I have been greatly convicted by this verse for this assembly. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. God created you with a soul. That soul is the source of your motivation by which you make decisions. That soul is the source of your ability to know God. That soul is the source of your ability to know yourself. That soul is the entity that truly is you. The body is you also. But the soul is that part of you that can commune with God, that can reject God, and that can sin against God. God created eternal souls. This verse, the apostle writing to certain Jews throughout the world, addresses them the same way that I address you this morning. Dearly beloved, my dear brethren, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. We are not in this world for any purpose but to serve God. We are strangers and pilgrims here. We This is not our place. This nation is not ours. This earth is not our mother. We are not looking for our fulfillment here. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are passing through. We should treat everything that we come in contact with and everything we see as if we were passing through. We are strangers and pilgrims. And the word is to us, abstain. Not play with. Not cut back on. Abstain from fleshly lusts. When someone abstains from something, they don't do it. Which war against the soul. We are in a war. There is a war going on for your soul. What kind of attitude do you have? Are you a campfire girl this morning? Or are you the special forces of God for your own soul? We're in a war. What I want to preach to you this morning is from 1 Peter 2.11 because we're in a war. So I want to preach and teach you this morning and myself what attitude we ought to have towards sin and sinners. Because we're in a war. 
And men that don't go to war, men that go to war, don't go with a compassionate feeling for the enemy. They don't go nonchalantly into battle. We're in a war. A war. There are enemies trying to kill you. That's a war. There are enemies sneaking around to take you by ambush. That's a war. There are enemies making frontal assaults. That's a war. Against your soul. What's the attitude we ought to have? One of righteous zeal and anger and hatred and repudiation of sin and of righteous and holy zeal for the Lord. And here's how I want to approach it today. I want to approach it from the fact that the combination of the words righteous indignation is what we are supposed to have towards sin and sinners. Righteous indignation. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 69 and verse 24. And please stay with me this morning. You can stay with a movie. You can stay with your hobbies. You can stay with all sorts of other nonsense. Stay with me. And it's not because I'm worth staying with. It's because I speak for the Lord from His Word. Psalm 69 and verse 24, I want to show you that God has righteous indignation. Indignation is anger, fury, and jealousy. God has indignation against sin and sinners. Righteous indignation is indignation or anger, fury, and jealousy against the proper objects. Righteous indignation is being angry and hating the right things. And I want to teach you that this morning because true men of God and true women of God learn how to hate sin and hate sinners and be angry and be furious and be indignant about what's going on. Paul wrote that church at Corinth and said, I hear that it's commonly reported that there's a fornicator among you and such as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, and instead of grieving, instead of mourning, you're puffed up about it. They were not ready for war, were they? War is serious business, and that church wasn't serious about its business. That's why every chapter brought to light a new problem at the church of Corinth. And we don't want to be like that. We want to be a perfect church. If David can say, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way, then this pastor can say, I want a perfect church that always behaves itself wisely in a holy way. I don't want to settle for anything less. When something is righteous, it is right and justifiable. Indignation is anger at what is regarded as unworthy or wrong. It's anger. It's a sense of, Wrath, excited by seeing meanness or cruelty. It's to be righteous in a dignified manner. It's to be righteously angry in a dignified manner. Indignation is to be angry. First of all, I want to show you that God has indignation. And what a blessed study I had just reading all the contexts of the word indignation. Psalm 69 and verse 24. Pour out thine indignation upon them 
and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. I don't care what this world tells you about God. I want to tell you what the Bible says about him. He has indignation, which is a holy and righteous anger and fury and jealousy against sin and sinners, both of them. They say, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Show me that in the Bible. Because I read in this verse and all the verses, pour out thine indignation upon them. It doesn't say pour out thy indignation upon it, upon them. And let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Psalm 78 and verse 49. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger. Okay, I'll wait. I'm going to get an overhead projector one of these days. And I'll turn to the verses for you. Psalm 78 and verse 49. I love you all. I just know that my minutes are precious. And if I have to wait for you turning an extra 15 seconds on every passage I have this morning, we're going to miss the potluck. Psalm 78 and verse 49. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. Wow. That's quite a verse, isn't it? I wonder why we don't see that very often on plaques. I don't, why don't we see it on bumper stickers? I like the verse. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger. This wasn't a little anger. The fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. Do you mean God would send evil angels? Yes, he would. And notice that it's the fierceness of his anger and his wrath and his indignation. Oh, where do we go? I could, I could entertain your spiritual souls all morning just by looking at the indignation of God, but we can't do that. Let's go to the book of Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. I have an ele- a, a, a young 11-year-old girl that God gave me 11 years ago. She came to me recently and she said, the first chapter of Nahum is different, isn't it? I said, don't you love it? You want a couple verses to memorize? For those of you that have already seen a couple in Psalm 101 that you need, listen to this God. I could read the whole thing, but let me start at verse 5. The mountains quake at him. And the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world, and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Amen and amen. Now, that's a good little expression. The rocks are thrown down by him. Why don't we hear that one very often? Why don't we hear that the earth is burned at his presence? 
The Lord God that is in his holy temple that we're supposed to be silent before has indignation against sin and sinners. Amen. We are in a war. Amen. We better be reflecting his indignation against sin and sinners. Or we've missed the boat somewhere and we have a false brand of religion and a false Christianity. We need to be reflecting the Spirit of God. And this is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is nothing else than you can show me in a Bible. Because the Spirit of God has been presented in the Bible. These are His words. This book is the expression of His soul. This is the Spirit of God. And if you want to walk in the Spirit, then you need to have a holy fury and a holy anger and righteous indignation against sin and sinners. Falling short of that will be less than what God expects us to be. Look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Psalm 5 and verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. God does not take pleasure in wickedness. He doesn't watch television that has wickedness on it. And that is all television. He doesn't do that. Evil shall not dwell with him. He doesn't put up with it. He doesn't condone it, allow it, or countenance it at all. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, that tell lies. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. The Lord will abhor. That's a word that we don't even use anymore. The Lord will abhor. And it doesn't say his sin. It says the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Right. Turn over to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. You don't have to turn far this time. Verse 11 says, God judgeth the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Now that's not something you hear very often either. God is angry. We need to be angry. When we see sin... It, it should cause a reaction in us, a reaction of anger, a reaction of indignation. And unless we get to that point, we are not living a holy life. We are not holy before God. Right. We are carnal. Because if that isn't welling up in you, you have been dulled <coughs> and numbed and seared in your conscience until you don't recognize sin for what it truly is. It is an offense against the Holy Lord that is in his holy temple. Right. And it is, it is the means by which the enemy destroys our soul in this war. And if you're not angry about it, when you see it creeping in, whether it's friends or family or church or anywhere, where when you see sin creeping in and you don't get angry about it, what's, that's your enemy. How can the enemy creep in and you not be getting angry? How can you not hate it? How can you not want to rush to it and destroy it? What's wrong? Because we're dulled to sin. And we live in a nation where we are dulled to it. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, and yes, I know the context, but he said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Listen, if Jesus could say that about his day, let me tell you something. I can tell you what he'd say if you were here today. He would quote Matthew 24 and verse 12 again. We're in a war, and so we need to have anger. And the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. Verse 12. 
if he turn not, if the wicked doesn't turn, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. God has indignation against the wicked. There's more verses that we could look at. Do you know what he's going to say to the wicked someday? Depart from me. I never knew you. And they're all going to be calling on his name and reminding him of all the worship services they've been in, and he is going to despise them. I never knew you. Get out of here! And it's going to be a voice. Brethren, we have never seen or felt anything like it in all the universe. And yet we can go play in this world without having holy anger well up within inside us for the television that we watch that is constantly selling us that fornication and adultery and lasciviousness is wonderful. It's in everything. Selling sex, selling women, selling nakedness. And yes, it's appealing to the flesh. That's why we watch it. That's why they program it, because they know they have you. It's not marketing. It's temptation from the devil. Because they know the fleshful desires of men. And that's a war against our soul. You are in a war. And your souls can be stolen. Indignation. Anger. Fury. Jealousy. Against something that is wrong. Until you have repudiated sin. Until you repudiate this world. Until you can go out in what you would call now a neutral activity and get aroused with anger, you don't hate sin enough. Going to a road race on a Saturday morning is called a neutral activity. But look at the clothing that's worn, look at the nakedness that is shown, and look at the people that are there. They're God-haters. They're body-worshippers. I can't wait to meet them when they're nothing but 50% of the weight they presently have in a bed with a little plastic hose at their nose and the little line can barely jump every now and then and it goes flat line. Then we'll see who their God is. They're going to meet him. He's called the king of terrors. Job 18.14 When you go and see people that are given over to worshiping their body, something ought to happen to you. You ought to get upset. You ought to get angry. When you go see people that are obsessed with their jobs, worrying about their retirement, worrying about their income, worrying about their house, get upset. It's vanity. It's sin. It's folly. Doesn't anybody know that there's a day of judgment coming? Am I the only one? It scares me. It frightens me. Rightfully so. Amen. You know, somebody who doesn't think we ought to live in fear, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I get so tired of hearing about God is love. I know He's love. And He has loved us, but do you know what He had to do to love us? 
He had to take his son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son in whom he was well pleased, and have righteous indignation against him for us. He had to bruise him, and punish him, and torture him, and grind him, and crush him, and leave him, and destroy him. So that he could love us. God is not this great big ball of love that just can't control itself. He doesn't love anything that he doesn't choose to love. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And he only loves those that were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. And he can only love them because of the wrath and indignation and fury that he poured out on Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17 And if ye call, notice the context here, let's get verse 16. It is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, these people that want to go around calling God Abba Father, Abba Father, okay, let's say that we get to call God Abba Father because of what Jesus Christ did for us in adopting us. But look what it says. If ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We are to spend the time of our sojourning here in fear. There's a day of judgment coming. Yes, we can love that God because he's delivered us from that judgment, but it is still going to be fearful. To stand there and have every one of our deeds, good and evil, brought up before Him. Every single one. Every idle word. Lord, help us. Every idle word. Yes, I'm recovered from my illness. I could run through a wall. If I could run through a wall and all of you would get this message without me preaching, I'd run through it. Don't talk to me about the love of God until you understand how he loves us. He only loves us because he poured out all of his indignation on the Lord Jesus Christ. More indignation than the world has ever seen. More than the flood. The flood didn't put away sins. More than the flood. He poured it all out on his son, Jesus Christ. That is how he loves us. That makes the love of God special. But we find the love of God being special by approaching God in fear and understanding his indignation against sin. Until we repudiate and hate sin, we haven't learned the holiness of God. We keep playing with it. You keep turning on your television. You keep clicking that remote. You keep going from channel to channel. You keep reading the newspaper. You keep reading magazines. You keep playing with fantasies in your mind. You hold on to sin. You hold on to bitterness. You don't rid it out of your heart. You don't make love with every other member of this assembly and get things right. We play with sin. And God hates it. And we're in war. And how do you play with the enemy? Does that make sense, Stephen? You were trained in the military of this country. Does it make sense to play with the enemy? We should hate the enemy. When we even see the color of their uniform in the distance. We want to go and attack it. And cut it out. Where is your righteous indignation about sin? Men can have righteous indignation And the Lord expects us to. And I want to show you that this morning. Indignation against sin is something that God loves. Do you know what he said of Jesus Christ and why he loved his son Jesus Christ? 
Because Jesus Christ loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Hated it. Until you hate it. I know this, brethren. I was left for 11 years. And I don't want anyone in here left for 11 minutes. Because I didn't hate it enough. Until you hate sin, the most delightful sin you can imagine, until you hate it, you have not been restored. You have not been delivered. You have not found repentance. You can talk about repentance all you want. You have not found the place of repentance until you repudiate and hate and are angry and are furious at your sin. Yes, your delightful, delectable sin that you thought was so delicious and good that you would take any risk and do anything to get your hands on that and to keep it. You haven't found the place of repentance. God has left you. And until you hate sin and repudiate it and have righteous indignation and fury against it, you have been left. You do not know the holy God yet. You are still living a modified brand of carnal Christianity, and we want to end that in this assembly. I want to end it in my family. I want to end it here in this body. I want us to live holy, sold-out lives for the Lord Jesus Christ and for righteousness and for the Holy Lord that is in His holy temple. Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Look at Psalm 97 and verse 10. Psalm 97 and verse 10. Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. Do you love the Lord? Do you know that it's a whole lot easier to say that you love the Lord than it is to hate evil? If you're going to go around saying you love the Lord, hate evil. Don't dislike it. I need to cut back on that. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. Oh, what a stupid thought. No, you shouldn't be walking up to the enemy's rifle and putting its barrel in your mouth. No, you shouldn't. But how many times do we turn on television and I hear the words, I don't think we should be doing this. Then shut it off. I don't know if we should be doing this. If there's a question, cut it out. We're in a war. Ye that love the Lord, hate Evil. 101.3 is what we read earlier this morning. Look at Psalm 119. 101.3 said, I hate the work of them that turn aside. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Come over to Psalm 119. And verse 163. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Do you hate and abhor lying. It's not enough to say, I don't want to be lied to. I don't like lies. That is so weak and effeminate, that's a campfire girl. Where's a soldier? I hate and abhor lying. But thy law do I love. You say that's all in the Old Testament. Yes, I know. So let's turn to the New. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. How much changing is there with God? He doesn't change. Romans chapter 12. The second sentence of verse 9. Sounds like the same God to me. Sounds like the same instruction. Abhor that which is evil. 
cleave to that which is good. Abhor it. Abhor evil. We don't abhor it. And until we hate it, I'm telling you, I'm telling you from the Word of God, because you can't find God ever playing with sin. Evil shall not dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. If you don't hate it, you are a, you have a carnal brand of Christianity. You do not know the God of the Bible. And it's going to cause you trouble and torment and frustration in your life. You have to hate it and root it all out of your life and cut it off with a knife and mortify it. That means to put it to death. We are in a war. And you know what? Your flesh that you have in your body and with attached to your soul, which tries to get you to sin, that is your enemy. And the Bible tells us to mortify all the fleshly deeds of our body. That means we have to cut off and then kill. But you have to kill yourself. That's called self-denial. There are things that you like. There are habits that you've developed. There are patterns in your family. There are weaknesses you have. And you have to go after them and kill them. It's painful. But if you ever got a picture of the war that's going on, if you got a picture of the God that's in His holy temple, if you got a picture of the judgment that's coming, it's easy. It makes so much sense. Because there's a holy God coming to judgment. Abhor that which is evil. Let's, let's look at a couple of examples. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. I hope by the grace of God that we'll have some sons of Levi. Amen. I love this chapter. You want a chapter to read with your children? Then go read Exodus 32 tonight. You want a chapter to read tomorrow? Read Exodus 32. On Tuesday night, you can try the 32nd chapter of Exodus. Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to tell you how wicked men's hearts are when they don't repudiate sin, and the Israelites never did, never had. They were always belly aching and complaining and murmuring. And so Moses goes up into Mount Sinai for 40 days. That's not even six full weeks. And while he's up there, they get bored. Because Moses that brought us up out of the land of Egypt is gone. And they come and confront Aaron, his brother. And they say to Aaron, we need some gods to worship. And Aaron being a carnal Christian that loved the Lord. Do you all understand me? Amen. Aaron was a, what was his job? Can you help me out? High priest. The high priest, the priest, Aaron's brother, the mouthpiece of Moses, what, what I, Moses' brother, the mouthpiece of, piece of Moses when Moses went to Pharaoh. He spoke for Moses until Moses got his courage up, then he spoke for himself. That man was confronted by these Israelites who said, we need some gods to go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron being a carnal Christian that loved the Lord but didn't hate evil, he said, break off your earrings. Give me all your earrings. He took all their earrings, melted them down, and made a golden calf. You can read this thing syllable for syllable. I'm not going to twist it, distort it at all. And the people all looked at that golden calf and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. 
Now listen, brethren, that nation had just been delivered through ten plagues. Ten plagues had destroyed the land of Egypt. God had brought them through the Red Sea. God had fed them water out of a rock. God had given them manna. And here they were making a golden calf and calling it the Lord in four capital letters, Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah, I am that I am. This is thy God that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. What should have happened to a man's soul? He should have had righteous indignation. He should have been furious. He should have been jealous for the Lord of hosts' sake. And Aaron bowed to their wishes and made them that golden calf. And he said, let's have a feast tomorrow to the Lord. And so they brought their peace offerings and they brought their burnt offerings and they offered some on the altar and the rest they ate so they had a huge feast. And it says the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. And not only were they not content with the Lord God of Israel, they wanted a golden calf, but they took off their clothes and had themselves a rock band there, rock and roll music, sex music, African sex music, and they had themselves an orgy. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That is a euphemism in the Bible. Sometimes the Bible's euphemistic in that it's discreet in its choice of language, and sometimes it is not. If you want to see the times that it's not, ask me. But here it's discreet. They rose up to play. They were naked. We're going to read that. You can read it later in Exodus chapter 32. Now Moses and Joshua are up on Mount Sinai with God. And God tells Moses what's going on. Do you know what's happened down there? Those people of yours that you brought out of the land of Egypt, notice, he doesn't even want to take ownership of them. You can read it all. It's all in Exodus 32. Those people, your people, that you brought out of the land of Egypt, they have forsaken me. They've made themselves a golden calf. And they're saying to it, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Do you know how horrifying that was to a jealous God? <laughs> the God that had just shown more favor and more power in delivering a nation than had ever been seen or ever shall be. Do you know what he did to Egypt for the sake of his people Israel? And he's looking down, seeing them all dancing naked and fornicating around a golden calf and calling it the Lord. Now I'll tell you, you want to you you be led by the Spirit? What should happen when you see or hear something like that? You want to annihilate. You see, I never get quite that far. Well, they need to keep praying for the Spirit of God. Because the God of heaven looked down and his anger waxed hot and he said, Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them and I'll make another nation out of you. And Moses begged for their lives and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought he was going to do and he did not destroy them all yet. Then Moses came down. He got through praying for those wicked people. And then Moses and Joshua began coming down Mount Sinai. And Joshua says, Moses, it sounds like the noise of war in the camp. Yes, that kind of music that goes along with sex and nakedness sounds like, you got it, noise. Noise. It sounds like the noise of war in the camp. Then they listen a little closer. It doesn't sound like those that are getting the mastery. And it doesn't sound like those that are being, that are under submission. No, it was the noise of singing. And Moses gets close enough and you can see it now in chapter, in verse 19 of this chapter. 
It came to pass, as soon as he came nigh into the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot. Now, brethren, when, when Moses sinned, did God know when Moses sinned? Did Moses ever sin? Was he supposed to speak to a rock once to get water out of it for the people of Israel and he smote it with a staff, his rod? Did God see his sin? Did God tell him he had sinned? Did God let us know that he had sinned? Did God judge him for his sin? Yes, 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 yes. To all those rhetorical questions that every Bible reader should know. But now something's happening here and God doesn't rebuke him at all because Moses is acting like God. God's already waxed hot in his anger. It's over in verse 11. And now Moses' anger is waxing hot. I want to tell you something about Moses. What kind of a man was Moses? Meekest man on the face of the earth. Was he a man given to violent temper fits? Was he a man to put himself up over people and when he was was not doing something that they were doing to self-righteously condemn others? No. No. Had he just been in prayer with the Lord? Had he just prayed for their forgiveness? What happened? He saw, he saw wickedness. And it infuriated him. It came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf. It's one thing to hear about something like this, but then to see it close to home. He saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. He was very angry. He was furious. He had righteous indignation. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. Those precious tables that it tells us in verse 16 that those tables were fashioned by God and the writing was of God. He took those beautiful tablets and smashed them because those people didn't deserve a covenant with God. And what does it say? Verse 20, He took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. That is a man that's angry. He took their golden calf, he burnt it, he ground it up, he turned it into powder, he put it on their water, and then he took the heads of that nation, or all the nation, and forced them to drink it. Do you find within yourself a kindred spirit to Moses? Or are you listening to this, and it's an interesting Bible story, but you don't really have any zeal in you against sin quite like this? This is how you ought to feel when you see the television. This is how you ought to feel when you see wickedness in the world or in our assembly. Or you hear about what's happening in the world or in our assembly. We don't get puffed up about it. We should mourn and grieve and be angry about it. Moses confronts Aaron, and I'm telling you, Aaron was trembling in his boots. And if you read his sick little excuse as to how that calf came into existence, you can understand why, though, because Moses was white hot with fury standing in his face, wanting to know why he had done that. And so he makes up the excuse that he cast a bunch of earrings into the fire and out jumped a calf. That's in verse 24. But now I want to get to the real meat of Exodus 32. 
that just lights me up. I want to know if there's any sons of Levi. Now I was going to bring some swords this morning, but I didn't. I didn't because I don't know if you people understand me all the time. But I know that for our younger set that's in here, that that would help them remember the lesson. But I didn't. Because I'm going to trust the Spirit of the Lord to do all that. But I wanted to have a big sword, and I wanted to bring some dolls. (laughs) And I would have made my point, literally. But I hope that you can get it from the words. Verse 25, this is what I wish that we all felt toward all sin. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, look at when he saw, when he actually saw wickedness, he he was the Lord's man. He loved the Lord, truly. He hated evil. When he saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. No one's getting out of here. He stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Who was on the Lord's side? He was white hot with fury. He stood in the gate of that camp so that no one could escape. And he asked, who was on the Lord's side? And this morning, the Lord, who is in his holy temple, is asking, who is on the Lord's side? And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. His brothers, his cousins, his second cousins, his third cousins came over to him. He stood in the gate and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Where was the battle line? The battle line had been drawn because of sin. Whenever you see sin, a line's been drawn. But we don't see the line anymore. We're numb to it. Oh, turn it off. I don't think there's anything good on tonight. That's not good enough. Hate it. And tell your children to hate it. Sorry, Andrew, that I don't have a sword, but I'm glad you're looking at me and listening. Hate it. Repudiate it. Despise it. It's not enough just to turn it off. You must hate it. Anything that is against the Lord of hosts must be hated. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And Moses stood in the gate, and the sons of Levi, his cousins, came to him. And they stood with him, and he said unto them, Would you all get down and offer up a prayer for these your brethren? And then go and comfort them? Forget it. You've been reading the wrong books. You've been reading Dale Carnegie instead of the Bible. You've been, you've been reading Mary Ten Boom or whatever her name was, instead of the Bible. You've been reading Pilgrim's Progress instead of the Bible. Here's what he said. Put every man his sword by his side. These were priests, brethren. They weren't used to going around with swords. Get every man a sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, but be very selective in who you kill. Here's those that you're allowed to kill. Go from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. 
And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and their fellow the people that day about 3,000 men. You know why it wasn't 30,000 or 300,000? Other times it was. Do you know why it was only 3,000? Because it was the sons of Levi that came that went after their brothers and their neighbors and their companions. Do you know what kind of a demonstration that was of the righteous indignation of God? You went after your family because they were jealous for the Lord of hosts' sake. Right. Now, we have a past perfect tense. That means after the description of 3,000 dying, we have a verse that was spoken before the men put on their swords. That's what the perfect, the past perfect means. Read it with me. Follow with me in verse 29. For Moses had said. Understand? Had, Moses had said. Not for Moses said. Moses <laughs> had said. Before they went out and did the action of killing the 3,000, here's further explanation of what he had said. And brethren, I ask you this morning, do you want to consecrate yourself to the Lord today? Yeah. Here's how they consecrated themselves to the Lord. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Do you want to consecrate yourself to the Lord? Sons of Levi, consecrate yourselves. You think you're God's priests? Then show your God's priests and take your swords and go in and out and kill every man his son and every man his brother. Because they had sinned. Is there even a contest in affection? Don't you love the Lord with all your heart? Then hate evil. And evildoers. Go in that camp and kill every man his son that you can obtain a blessing from the Lord. Is that what it says? And that's how you consecrate yourself. You know what we do today? We get a big assembly. 50,000 people in Shea Stadium. We get um, Roger Staubach, quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, to come and give a five-minute testimony. We get Charlton Heston to come and give a five-minute testimony. Maybe we can even get Tom Cruise to come if he'll pretend he's a Christian for five minutes. Then we hear the words, do you want to dedicate yourselves again to the Lord? Do you want to dedicate your life? Then all come, everyone who wants to dedicate their life to the Lord, come forward. And so they come forward along with 10,000 10, others and they think they've done something great for God. This is what happens. Do you want to get saved? And then whoever wants to dedicate their lives to the Lord, come forward. I'll tell you how to dedicate your life to the Lord. Go after some sin and some sinners and make them close to home. And you know what? We've all got them. We've got them real close to home. We can start whittling on ourselves and on our wives and on our children and on our grandchildren. Then the Lord will find out if you're really dedicated to Him or not. 
I'm so sick of this false brand of Christianity that brings a bunch of carnal testimonies into an assembly in order to seduce, by worldliness, people to come down. I love the sons of Levi. They were on the Lord's side. They went and killed their close relatives to prove that they were the Lord's men. That's why there were only 3,000. The Lord took care of the rest. The plague operated among this nation because of what they had made that golden calf. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 33 because I want you to see just how important that event was. It's one of the smaller judgments of God. 3,000 was all. But you know what? Those 3,000 were all close kin. They were brothers, companions, and neighbors, and sons. Didn't waste their time on the girls. Deuteronomy 33. Look at the first verse. It tells us what this chapter is about. This is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And Moses begins to move down through the tribes of Israel and gives them a blessing before he dies. When he comes to the tribe of Levi, here's what he has to say. The tribe of Levi has their blessing in verses 8 through 11. I want to read to you verse 9. Who said unto his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children. For they have observed thy word and kept thy covenant. Moses, 40 years later, 40 years later, when Moses is about to die, he remembers that event from Exodus chapter 32, and he brings it back up before God. They kept your word. They kept your covenant. And they went and killed their own close relatives. I haven't seen them. Neither did he acknowledge his brethren nor knew his own children. Because they had consecrated themselves by going in and killing every man his son and every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And that's how they dedicated themselves. Now, in the light of Exodus chapter 32, how much righteous indignation do we have against sin? Do you know what? We are afraid to say, turn the television off. We are weak. We're campfire girls. We're, we don't even belong in the same nation with the sons of Levi. Why can't we do that? Why, when we hear our children listening to some music that we don't like, can't we say, turn it off? That isn't pleasing to the Lord. When we see a magazine or a book that someone's reading, even from the library, even from the school, oh, horrors. Put that thing away. Give me that book. Why aren't we like that? Because we're worldly. We're dull. We're numb. We're playing with sin. We've let the enemy come in. We're losing the war. I'm not playing with it anymore. haven't been for a while. But the consequences of playing with it are great. I don't want there to be any more consequences. We're in a war for our souls. Where are the sons of Levi? Do you love the sons of Levi? Amen. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Stood in the gate. No one's getting out of here. The sons of Levi came. He said, get your swords on. Go find your closest relative and kill him. Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25 is about another hero. All you young men, you little campfire girls out there, are there going to be some soldiers 
Are there going to be some sons of Levi? Mark? Are you going to be a son of Levi? Or are you going to be a campfire girl? Every one of you, young people, you need to hate sin and hate those that bring it to you. Let's read about another hero who had righteous indignation. Israel abode in a place called Shittim, verse 1, and the Midianites, also called the Moabites, came down because they knew they couldn't defeat them in battle. They brought their women, dressed out in the modern fashions, probably in road race attire. They brought their women down so that the women could seduce the Israelite men, and then they could say, let's go worship our gods together. And oh, what a man will do for a woman. Just what God had warned them not to do, they did. The Moabite women came down, seduced the men, and said, let's go worship Baal. And so the whole nation was worshiping Baal and fornicating. And the plague broke out on them. The plague? You mean, you mean, you mean something like AIDS? Yes. Something like AIDS broke out on the nation of Israel. And 24,000 died. A plague. 23,000 of that 24,000 died that very day. It was much quicker acting than AIDS. But God let a plague break forth on those fornicating idolaters because they were worshiping Baal and committing fornication with the daughters of Moab. And God said, Moses, if you want to stop this plague, then take the heads of all the nation, the important men, the princes, and hang them up before me. Let me see them all strung up. So Moses told the judges, get in there and get everyone his man. Get the head of all 12 tribes and hang them up. And there they were all dangling on the ends of ropes before the great God of the, of the Bible. They're all hanging there. And most of the nation comes together to the tabernacle and is mourning because all the best known, most popular, <coughs> the men of renown of their nation are hanging there dangling on the ends of ropes. And the nation's mourning, and there was a bold sinner, an unnatural sinner, a presumptuous man. He had himself a Midianite woman by the hand, and he drug her right into the midst of this huge assembly that's mourning because all their great men are up there dead, and there's 24,000 dead on the ground. And they're all mourning at the door of the tabernacle. And here comes a man with a Midianite woman. He drags her in right in front of all his brethren. He's laughing and having a good time with his little babe. And he takes his babe into a tent and he fornicates with her. In the midst of this solemn morning service. But there was one man there, brethren. Amen. And his name was Phinehas. And I want that word to, to reside in your memories for as long as you live, Andrew. Phinehas. He saw that happen. Kevin. He didn't go over to the tent and knock on the door and say, Brother, brother, I don't think you should be doing that. Could we pray together about this? He didn't go over and slide a track under the tent hoping that he might see it in the midst of his activity. He didn't get a few friends and say, let's pray for this situation. What does it say? What did he do? Verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, 
the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. Remember? When evil gets close, and you're able to see it and recognize it and know that it's in your presence, it should evoke in you a holy hatred for it. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation. Do you know what that means? No one else moved. I love Phinehas. No one else moved. They all sat on their fat rear ends. They all stood mourning the little crybabies. Sin is a time for righteous zeal, not just a time for crying. Phinehas rose up from among the congregation. The rest of them sat there, stood there, bawled there. But he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, a spear. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. That is how we have to treat sin. I don't know if we should be doing this, honey. You know, I feel uncomfortable about this, but I guess one more time won't hurt. What other excuses does our soul throw up? Throw up. Where are the Phinehases? There are exceptions. Do you know how many you find in a congregation? About one. But there were the sons of Levi, too. There's a few. Elijah thought he was the only one in his day. But God said, I've got 7,000 more. You just don't know about them. I don't want to be like Elijah. I want to know about them. I want to know if there's some who are on the Lord's side today that are going to hate sin in the way that God expects us to hate it and have a holy anger toward it. This man took himself a javelin and he went into that tent And he thrust both of them through. Now you can imagine their position, and you can imagine how he did it. And you can imagine that he got them both through the belly. And he nailed them right there, and that was shish kebab. That was Israelite and Moabite shish kebab. Now, I want to really bless your souls. Here's what the Lord had to say about it. Verse 10, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. God was jealous for his worship. They were worshiping Baal. But Phinehas stopped his plague One man, one event, stopped his plague because he loved the spirit of Phinehas who was zealous for what cause? For the Lord's cause. He was zealous for my sake. The Lord loves those that are zealous for his sake. That's why when it's his sake that's at stake, no one else counts. Not a son, not a daughter, not anyone counts. You love the Lord, hate evil. You really love the Lord, then show me your javelin. Verse 12, it gets better. God is still speaking to Moses. Wherefore say, I want you to give Phinehas a little message from me. 
Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. You know how we think that we get peace? Treaties. Compromise. Beautiful, man. Thank you. Exactly. Let's love them into peace. Show me that in the Bible. Any testament, any book. Let's love them into unity. Let's make peace. Let's have compassion. Let's sweetly pray for them. Where's some righteous indignation? And it's true in the New Testament as well. Paul said it to the Corinthian church. I've already quoted it. They had that fornicator there and they should have been upset about it. And they weren't. Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace. And he shall have it. And his seed after him. Even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God. And made an atonement for the children of Israel. That's Phinehas. What are the great words that are said in the Bible about Abraham? It says about Abraham, he's called the father of the faithful because it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. I can do better than that. I can go to Psalm 106 and read you these words. Just think, just think about these words. Now the great words of the Bible about Abraham, they're quoted in Romans, they're quoted in James, they're quoted in Hebrews, and of course they're in Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Let me read to you about Phinehas in Psalm 106. Just listen. Speaking of Israel, they joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague break in upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. And here we are, 4,000 years later, we're still reading, still rejoicing, still blessing, still knowing that Phinehas was a righteous man because of his zeal for the Lord of hosts. You can't show me your zeal when you're bawling. Where is the anger against sin? Where's the righteous indignation that we're supposed to have for sin? Jesus Christ had it. What happened to him when he came around the corner and saw some money changers at the temple? Did he pray for them? Nope. Did he preach a sermon to help them out? Nope. He made himself a scourge of small cords and he drove them out of the temple. And the witnesses had a little bit of light given to them that called his apostles they remembered Psalm 69.9, and it came to their understanding. And this was by the gift of God, because those apostles at that time didn't understand anything. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Right. A testimony of what the Lord Jesus Christ would be like. Jesus of Nazareth is just like Phinehas. You want to read Matthew 23 and hear how he addresses the Pharisees? He's just like the sons of Levi. Because he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And he was furious. I read in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5 when he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And he knew the hard hearts around him were upset with him for healing a man the Sabbath day. It says he looked on them in anger. That is righteous indignation. And that is the sweet Lord Jesus Christ. He is the indignant Lord Jesus Christ. 
And brother, he's, brethren, he's coming back in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with his mighty angels. Don't, for, don't miss who Jesus Christ is. He's not that long-haired, effeminate hippie that stands at some door knocking on it impotently because he can't get in. My Jesus Christ opens and no man shuts and he shuts and no man opens. He has the keys of David. He opens hell and he shuts it. And he's alive forevermore and he's glorious. And brethren, this is re- it, the words are almost meaningless to our generation. He is coming again and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you are going to go out of here and there is not one thing out there that will even slightly remind you of that fact. And I am telling you about the most important date in your life. It's the day of the judgment of Jesus Christ. And no one talks about it. No one thinks about it. No one writes about it. No one preaches about it. I feel it a total loss. Except by His Spirit. I feel like I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Yesterday, everybody went and watched football. Stadiums all over the country, huge worship services towards some stupid little game. Don't they know? They're all going to die. We are all going to die and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Where is our righteous hatred for sin? Despising it. It's not enough just to cut it off. I've cut off things in my life. And I didn't hate them enough. Hate them. Repudiate them. Be angry about them. Have righteous indignation about them. One last reference. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to show you that the Lord expects there to be some sons of Levi and some Phinehases in the New Testament. This is the only cure for sin. And this is the only way that you get to love a sinner when they repent. And it better be repentance of this sort. But that's not what I'm mentioning this verse for. I want you to go after it for yourselves. This is how the Lord expects you to treat yourself. And not with kid gloves. I read in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. You ever see people say they're sorry and then go back and do the same thing again? Godly sorrow works repentance not to be repented of. Do you understand that? Godly sorrow, if you really get angry and you're really sorrowful for your sin, you'll repent in a way that you don't go back on it. Godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repentant to salvation. Forgive me for leaving out that verse in my commentary on it. To salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. <coughs> now here, here it is. This is true repentance. Right. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Okay. He is going to tell us exactly what the godly sorrow of verse 10 is that works salvation. He's going to tell us exactly what true sorrow is. And there's, there's no tears involved. 
Here's godly sorrow. Behold, if you want to be crying while you're using your javelin, that's okay. But don't stand there with the rest of the congregation just crying. Get your javelin. Here's true repentance. For behold this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sword. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, 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 what indignation. Amen. What is indignation? Anger, fury, and jealousy against something or someone. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Vehement is a very hot thing. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. That's what Phinehas had. Yea, what revenge. That's what the sons of Levi had. Exclamation point. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That is a glorious text. You want to know what kind of an attitude to have towards sin? It's 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11. If it's anything short of that, you haven't met the Lord yet. I'm going to be praying that you meet him. But I hope that you'll meet him soon so that you don't have to meet the king of terrors. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to hate sin and be righteous servants of his is my prayer. Amen.